Now I'm going to read this evening that passage in Ephesians chapter 3, but I'm going to read it in the New International Version. Ephesians and chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me to me for you, That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God, with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Well, now, we're smaller this evening in number, and what I'd like to do uh, tonight, in the time that we have, is to take up another matter to do with this, with the practical relevance of this mystery of Christ to us all. I've been taking this series on the mystery of Christ as to what it is. It's a tremendous um, term that is used um, in the uh, letters of Paul, particularly in the New Testament. And it isn't just some luxury or some uh, wonderful uh, and glorious insight into something which is not so very relevant to us and not so very practical. But in actual fact, the mystery of Christ brings us to the very heart of God's purpose as to why he created the world, why he created man, why when man fell he persevered, what is the object of our salvation and all these other things. Now, we've spent some time on this matter, so I'm not going to go over it uh, this evening. It's all on tape. Um, You can listen to those earlier studies, and I trust that they would really help you. Last 
uh, Thursday evening, we spoke, I began on the matter of the practical relevance of the mystery of Christ uh, to us all. And I said that it was um, the oneness of Christ in action. The heart of the mystery, this secret which God has communicated to all born-again believers, is that we are one with Christ. We've been brought into a union with the Lord Jesus. And because we've become one with him, we have become one with one another. Um, uh, We have become one body, as it says in Romans 12 and verse 5, we've become one body in Christ. Not only one body of Christ, we've become one body in Christ. That is, we are not only members of the Lord Jesus, we're members one of another. We've not only become limbs of Christ, parts of Christ, to put it literally in another, using another English word, but we've become limbs or parts of one another. That's the intensely direct relationship that we have come into spiritually through a new birth. And this oneness of Christ, the middle wall of petition has gone. It doesn't matter whether it's racial uh, differences, national differences, social differences, uh, theological differences, uh, temperamental differences, the sex barrier, um, the age barrier. It doesn't matter what it is, it's all been abolished. Not the actual things. If you're Chinese, you remain Chinese. If you're uh, uh, American, you remain American. If you're British, you remain British. If you're Jewish, you're still Jewish. Um, If you're Gentile, you're still Gentile in background. But in Christ, you are one new man. The, the, The cause of bitterness, the cause of division, the cause of alienation is gone. The uh, wall of hostility has gone. Um, Whether it's uh, the men versus women, or women versus men, or whether it's the old versus the young, or the young versus the old, in Christ, the wall of hostility has been removed at tremendous cost. And we've all been brought into this amazing oneness. We are in the same Lord Jesus, and the same Lord Jesus is in us. Now, that is the oneness of Christ. And it's really the mystery of Christ is that oneness in action. In other words, somehow that's got to be seen. Now, I'd like to take that another step um, this evening because I can't, we can't go over all that we said last week although it's tremendously important and um, I want to just underline another matter which lies at the root of a tremendous amount you may not feel it it does so much when I begin but I think if you go away and pray about it and think about it it will come home to you that this matter is of tremendous relevance and importance. The mystery of Christ spans the whole of time. Now that's a very simple thing to say. The mystery of Christ spans the whole of time. It lies at the heart of the purpose of God and spans the whole of the ages. Not one age, 
That's where people make their mistake. Not one age, but all the ages. It has been revealed in only one age. But the work was going on from the beginning. Have you got it? The work has been going on right from the beginning. But it has been only revealed to us in this age. Now, just take a few of these scriptures. For instance, take Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5. This is what the Apostle Paul said. Which in other generations, the mystery of Christ, last part of verse 4, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 9. And to make all men see what is the dispensation or stewardship or administration of the mystery which for ages hath been hid in God. So this thing has been hid in God for ages. It has not been revealed for ages and generations. Now, a generation, a biblical generation, is 40 years. An age can be much, much longer. It can be a couple of thousand years. It can be a thousand years. Um, but for ages and generations, this um, secret of the Lord has not been revealed. It's been hid in God. Take again Romans chapter 16 and um, uh, verse 20. Um, uh, five. Now to him that is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept in silence through times eternal. <laughs> That's a marvelous phrase, isn't it? But hath now been revealed, it says, but now is manifested. So, it's been kept in silence for times eternal. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26. Even the mystery which hath been hid for ages and generations, but now hath it been manifested to his saints. Now, let's come back to this matter. Although it has been revealed in this age the work began from the beginning <laughs> it didn't commence with Pentecost it didn't even commence with the calling of the twelve apostles it went right back to the first time that God took hold of a human being and by their looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, saved them. Now, that's really when this thing began. Now, let's, have an, uh, 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 let's put it in a little more forceful way, if we can. What does it mean? This oneness of Christ is not just a question that all the believers who gather at Halford House ought to be one. Because the Bible says they should be one. It doesn't even mean that all the believers who live in Richmond ought to be one. 
because the Bible says they're one. It doesn't even mean that all the believers alive at this present point in time in the whole world, whether Iran or Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia or China or behind the Iron Curtain or in the New World or here, ought to be one because the Bible says we are one. This oneness includes every truly saved human being, every born-again believer in this age. Now, when you begin to think of that, it's really tremendous. It may not seem at present to have such a... It may seem to be a little more abstract to begin with, but we'll come to that in just a moment. But you see, what we're saying is this, that this union with Christ, the Apostle Paul was in this, the Apostle John was in this, the Apostle Peter was in this, Timothy was in this, Barnabas was in this, Titus was in this. Later on, many of the others came into it. Jeremy was in it. St. Augustine was in it. Later, Martin Luther came into it. John Calvin was in it. Zwingli was in it. George Fox was in it. Just to mention a few names we know. John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield was in it, George Muller, <laughs> Jay and Darby. <laughs> they were all in it. Watchman Nee was in it. Austin Sparks was in it. Mrs. Penn Lewis was in it. <laughs> and today we're in it. It's really a tremendous thing, this, this unity that Jesus said... Neither for you only, for these only do I pray, but for those who believe on their name, that they may all be one, even as Father, thou art in me, and I in thee, that they may be in us. He wasn't thinking of a few people living together on a particular time in Richmond who gather at Halford House. Of course it's included, but it's far bigger than that. He was praying for all those who would come after those 12 apostles. Everything, actually it was 11, because he remember he said the son of perdition, he was the only one I, wasn't, I didn't keep because he's gone to his own end. But he, wanted, he was praying for every single person after that who would be saved by the grace of God, who should be born of the Spirit of God. And he said that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be in us. This is the mystery of Christ. It, uh, it means that every born-again believer is in Christ. All born-again believers are in Christ. Whether from the New Testament age, or since then, or now. We're all in the same marvelous, Unity. Now take the scripture and just have a look. Take Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 to 22. So then, ye are no more strangers and sojourners, but ye are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, 
fitly framed together, grow us into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. Now, will you please note this little word here? So then, ye are no more strangers and sojourners, but ye are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Fellow citizens with the saints. That's interesting. What saints? Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable hosts of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, just think of it. He, the writer says, we have come to Mount Zion, we have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable hosts of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and then he says this amazing word, to, to, the, to the spirits of just men made perfect. <laughs> As we've already come there. So, at any single point in which God brings us into the family of God, we come into something which he's been doing for the whole of this age. And there are already many who've been made perfect. Men justified and brought to completeness. That we were speaking about last week or the week before when I just said that we've got to come to maturity. That's the whole point of this mystery, that we might grow up in, in Christ. We might come to the full grown man. We might come to the full stature. Well, it, it, we're told we've already come there. We've come to this Mount Zion. We've come to this heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to this city of the living God. We've come to the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant. Now take an, another scripture which brings it home. I, I don't know whether this really will bring it as it ought to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. You all know this terribly well. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, you might wonder what on earth I've read this particular verse for. But you see, just think, the dead, where? In Christ. And where are you? <laughs> you are physically alive in Christ. They're even more alive in Christ. They're called the dead in Christ. They're actually more alive than we are. <laughs> but isn't that amazing? If you're in Christ, they're in Christ. You've come to this Mount Zion. 
You've come to this city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. And when the Lord comes to wind up this whole age, and in fact to wind up the ages of time, then it says, we which are alive and remain will in no way precede those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. But the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are physically alive in Christ will be caught up together with them. And so shall we be forever with the Lord. And the whole mystery will be unveiled. All those who are joined to God's Messiah. All those who've been made alive to God through him. All those who've become members of his body. All those who've become living stones built together to be that holy temple in the Lord. Now, I find it rather amazing. And at present, again, you may not quite see why we're majoring on this point as something that has practical relevance uh, to us. You'll see it in just one moment. The fact is this. There is only one church. There's not a New Testament church, as people often call it. And then a church in the Dark Ages. And then a Reformed church. (laughs) And then a modern church, or whatever you like to call it. There's only one church. It hasn't got any label. It's one church. And it's wonderful when we begin to say, listen, there's only one church and there is only one body. How many bodies has the Lord Jesus got? There's only one body. And is that body only those who are physically alive today, here on this earth? Of course not. Wasn't Paul a member of that body? Wasn't Peter a member of that body? Wasn't Luther and Calvin and Swingley members of that body? When John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitman members? Of course they are. We understand. We begin to see it. Now if they're members of that body, so are you. No, it takes you right out of this humdrum, routine, parochial little idea where we're all closed up to one another in some small little locality, shoved together, and it sometimes becomes very, very... Oh, very claustrophobic. We suddenly realize that our salvation is tremendous. We've been introduced into something which was in the heart of God from before time began. And which he, it was in his heart when he created the universe, when he created human beings, and even when they fell, it was in his heart in redemption. And when the Savior came, it was in the Savior's heart. Right from the beginning. And so, by the grace of God, you and I have come into this one body of the Lord Jesus. Isn't it marvelous? I can't think of anything more. I sometimes think that it's been my privilege to have known great saints. I thank God that I ever knew Austin Sparks. I thank God that I had the privilege of knowing Lady Ogle. I thank God that I had the privilege of knowing people like Miss Liblick, Alexander Liblick, and Kathleen Smith, and Mary Weiss, 
and Ma Harry and many others. If we started to go through the long list of names, I thank God I had this privilege. And it's a great joy to me to think I'm in the same thing they were in. I'm so unworthy, and yet I am a fellow member with them of the body of the Lord Jesus. But think, do you realize that the body you're in, you are a fellow member with the Apostle Paul? And you are a fellow member with Peter and John and James? Do you realize that you are a fellow member with people like Augustine and Jeremy? You are a fellow member with Luther and Sweeney and Calvary and Wesley and the George Fox and all the others? It's tremendous. Think of the privilege, isn't it? A marvelous thing to be saved. It's absolutely amazing thing. You think, well, do you know I'm an unknown? You, you might think to yourself, I'm just an unknown. I mean, just a few people here know my name. Who else knows my name? Do you know, I don't, I, I don't myself doubt that the Apostle Paul knows your name. It would seem a very strange thing to me, this cloud of witnesses, if they don't know the names of all those who are being added. Oh, I bet they go, if I may so use a term, a Sunday school term, every day to look at the register. <laughs> Those being added. It's, don't forget for them, it's the secret of everything. We've been praying about Iran and Afghanistan. I mean, this is the thing that lies at the heart of the whole thing. Why all this unrest and hostility and up and down and all the things, it's going to grow and grow and grow as we come to the climax of the age and the coming of the Messiah. And those who have passed on, if they are at all conscious in the presence of the Lord, must know this is the heart of the whole matter. This is the thing that was in the heart of God from the beginning. And every single one who's a fellow member with us is very precious to us. If we get a love for the people of God so that somehow or other they become precious to us, we, we want to get to know them. We want to get to know their name. We want to get to know who they are. How much more must it be for those who born so much of the responsibility on their shoulders, they're going to, we're all going to be together forever. We're not going to be one great anonymous mass. Somehow or other, there's going to be a getting to know one another. Well, I find it rather wonderful when you think of it uh, like that. Um, there's only one church. There's only one body. There's only one bride. There's only one city, and that's the mystery of Christ. The heart of the whole thing is union with Christ. Now, we don't say the Apostles' Creed here, and I've often been sorry that we don't. I sometimes think it would be a very good thing now and again to go back to that old um, uh, uh, confession together, um, of, of, of the creed not because we want to put our faith in some written document but because now and again the simple statement of elementary, essential and fundamental truth is a great help in the very unseen and one of the things we say in the Apostles' Creed which is the oldest creed and the simplest of all that goes right back to the third century of the church is this I believe in the communion of saints. Do you remember that, those of you who've got a more sort of um, 
Anglican background, I believe in the communion of saints. What does it mean? I say, if, did you think it meant, I believe in fellowship? <laughs> well, of course it meant fellowship, but it means a good deal more than you and somebody else getting to know each other in the Lord. I believe in the communion of saints. The communion of saints. The whole practical entity of those who are born of God. It's not many circles, it's only one circle. Not many families, only one family. Not many communions, only one communion. They sometimes speak of denominations as a communion. I sometimes hear people say, I belong to such and such a communion. And someone else says, I belong to such and such a communion. Well, there is the communion, the communion of saints. And there's only one communion. It's one glorious communion that consists of every single born-again believer. Now, I think that's something to get quite excited about. I, I don't think that many Christians would ever confess that because their horizons are much narrower. They say, I believe in fellowship, especially here. You know, I mean, that's what we feel strongly about. We believe in fellowship. We believe that Lord's people should have fellowship. But it's much bigger than that. This fellowship comprises all those whom God has gathered into the Lord Jesus. I believe in the communion of saints. There'll be some in there we'll be a bit surprised about. And there'll be some notable absentees. Just because a person had a collar or a title or a position doesn't mean they're in the communion of saints. And just because some people had some rather weird ideas doesn't mean that they're not in it. It's strange. But only God knows the elect. But everyone who's been born of the Spirit, they're in this communion. Well, I find this, as I say, rather amazing. And now, furthermore, I'd like to take it a step further because this may clear up for some of you some problems you have on some issues. May, it may not. Um, uh, this, uh, it's clear from the Word of God that all the Old Testament saints are in this communion. All the Old Testament saints are in this communion. Huh. Some people don't think that, you know. They think we can do without the Old Testament. Old Testament, well, I mean, it's like someone's appendix. As they used to say, the good old days, prehistoric. Some leftover from prehistoric days where men went round chewing on raw meat and bones and uh, he had an appendix, you see. It's useless to them today. That's what they used to say. Today they don't. But uh, And people look upon the Old Testament. I said the Old Testament prehistoric. They used to go round slaughtering one another in the name of the Lord. I mean, it doesn't mean anything to us today. I mean, it's... Uh, in those dark days when people were very uh, poor and hardly literate and, and uh, just wait 
What does it mean in Ephesians? Listen now. See, the trouble is we read these scriptures, but they never come home to us. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse um, 5. Well, we'll say verse 4. I won't read it because we keep on reading this. The mystery of Christ, which in other ages and generations has not been so on. Verse 6. To wit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Listen. And fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise. I do like the way it's put in here. I think it's much clearer in this new international version. I like it very much. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, fellow heirs. Fellow heirs with whom? Fellow heirs with the saints in the old covenant. Must be, isn't it? Fellow members of the body. Oh, you mean, you mean they were in the body. But they can't have been because the body wasn't revealed then. No, you're quite right. That's the mystery which wasn't revealed. But it doesn't mean they weren't in the spiritual entity. Do you understand? They were in the spiritual entity, though it hadn't been revealed to them. Fellow partakers of the promise. It doesn't say, get this clear because we're also big-headed in it. It doesn't say, they are fellow heirs with us. Fellow members of the body us fellow partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus with us no we are fellow heirs with them we are fellow members of the body with them we are fellow partakers of the promise with them the shoes on the other foot now, just take another little thing, uh, just to make sure you understand this. Look at chapter 2 and verse 19. I've made, so then, ye are no more, this is Gentiles, no more strangers and sojourners, but ye are fellow citizens with the saints. Who was he talking about when he wrote this in the first century? What saints? Fellow citizens with the saints. He meant the Old Testament saints. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Now, let's go a little bit further this, with this matter. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. That ye were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise. I like that. Here it is in the new version, uh, which I also like very much. This is how it's put. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Now then, take another scripture. Look at Matthew chapter 8. And verse 11 and 12. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast forth into the outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. 
Isn't that interesting? He says about these that are going to be saved, they shall come from, me, from the north and south, from east and west. They shall sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's the same kingdom. You see, there is a little phrase that is often used wrongly, in my estimation, uh, by many. And it's that little phrase that the Lord Jesus said about John the Baptist. He said, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And people have therefore taken it that the Lord Jesus was saying that all the Old Testament saints were really pathetic spiritually. And that the least and most insignificant and most unworthy born-again believer under the new covenant is of greater spiritual character and worth than them. But I don't think so at all. He wasn't saying this is the kingdom and that's not the kingdom. They, the born-again believers in the new covenant, are in the kingdom, but the others are not. What he was saying is this, at least as I see it, that the least in the kingdom of God under the new covenant has greater privileges and advantages than even John the Baptist. Otherwise, why do we talk about being fellow citizens with them, fellow partakers with them, fellow heirs with them, if they're so little, so pathetic? But listen, there's a good deal more than this. It's it rammed home in other things. Look at Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, verse 28 and 29. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets this time in the kingdom of God and yourselves cast forth without and they shall come from the east and west and from the north and south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God and behold there are last who shall be first and there are first who shall be last or again have you got your um, Bible turn to Revelation 21 verse 12 Revelation 21 verse 12 having a wall great and high having twelve gates and at the gates, twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So the names of the twelve patriarchs are on the twelve gates of the bride of Christ, the city of God. This heavenly Jerusalem, this city of the living God, has twelve gates, and on the gates are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Now look at verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I can't think there could be anything clearer than this. You have the twelve patriarchs, and you have the twelve apostles. Representing those under the, of the elect people of God, under the old covenant, and those, the elect people of God, under the new covenant, joined together in the one bride, the wife of the Lamb. Well, I, I think this mystery is something worse than beginning to think about it if it's as wonderful as this. You mean to tell me, you say to me, you mean to tell me that, that this goes back to Abraham? Yes. You mean to tell me that, 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 that although I'm a Gentile, totally a Gentile, I have been introduced into something which goes right back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes. 
you have. That's the glory of it. That's the wonder of it. This union with Christ. You see, we say union with Christ. Supposing we used another word that would just put it into its Hebrew context. Supposing we said union with the Messiah. Our concept immediately begins to change. Immediately there's an adjustment. Union with the Messiah. That's what they looked for. Abraham rejoiced to see his day. The gospel was preached to Abraham. (coughs) So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all looked to that day. Moses looked to that day. He remembered, a prophet like unto me shall the Lord your God raise. Him shall you hearken to, and so on. It's rather wonderful when you begin to see it like this. Uh, Let me give you another scripture now. The The final punch line. Hebrews chapter 11. And verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out into a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing whither he went. Verse 10, for he looked for the city which has the foundations, whose builder and architect is God. So Abraham never did live in a city. He never lived in Jerusalem of this earth. He never lived in a city. All his life he lived in tents. And yet he looked for the city which has the foundations, whose builder and maker or architect is God. And when we come to Revelation 21, we find, dear Abraham, somehow uh, that's the city which has the foundations. And the foundations have the twelve names, not of his grand, uh, great-grandsons, but has the names of twelve Now turn at the same chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things make it manifest that they are seeking after a country of their own. And if indeed they had been mindful of that city from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebekah, Rachel and Leah. They're all included. Now go on. Verse 39. Here we come to it. Listen very carefully. And these all. Who are these all? Go right back. And you'll find they're all here. Going right back to Abel. Enoch. And then Noah. And then Abraham. Isaac, Jacob. And their wives. And then on Moses, Joshua, even Rahab's here. She was a Gentile. Rahab, the Egyptian, she's here. And then we go on, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Now listen. And these all, having had witness born to them through their faith, received not the promise. What did you hear? Received not the promise. The mystery of Christ, to wit, that you are fellow heirs, 
fellow members of the body and fellow partakers in the promise through Christ Jesus. Now listen here. Receive not the promise. Now listen. God having provided some better thing concerning us. That apart from us they should not be made perfect. Oh now that transforms everything. Doesn't it? <clears throat> you should underline it. Apart from us. Apart from us. They should not be made perfect. So Dear Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, these prophets, they can't come to perfection. They can't come to completion. They can't come to full growth without us. So much for that idea that when the Jewish people rejected and crucified their Messiah, God had to think again and he thought up the church. A kind of secondary purpose. He brought in something because the pe his people failed. And so he thought, now what shall I do? And then he thought, yes, I'll get the Gentiles in. No, from the very beginning it was his thought to have the Gentiles in. Only instead of it coming through the faithfulness of the Jewish people, it came through their fall. Instead of it coming through the, I put it in quotes, success of the Jewish people. It came through their failure and their loss. You get it? Now, let me just say something, just insert something here that may just be a shaft of light for some people. The Apostle Paul says, now, if the fall of the Jewish people is the riches of the world, and their loss, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If you have come into the unsearchable riches of the Messiah through the loss of the Jew to the Jewish people. So therefore, what will happen when they come to fullness? Verse 15. Now, if the casting away of them, the Jewish people, is the reconciling of the world, what will the receiving of them be? but life from the dead. <clears throat> Many believers, I suspect, are like square pegs in round holes. You can study theology, you can study the word, and yet have no understanding of the will of God for our day and generation. This mystery of Christ is so tremendous because, you see, God has been doing one thing from the beginning. Not many things. 
One thing. And in the wisdom of God, it has been achieved, not through the success of the Jewish people, but through their fall. Do you think that he will then throw them away? No, the scripture says. Now I tell you a mystery. A hardening has befallen in part, has befallen, a, a, a hardening has befallen Israel in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so shall all Israel be saved. This doesn't mean just all the physical Jewish people, but it does mean that at the end, a tremendous number of Jewish people will be regathered back into the Israel of God. The natural branches will come back in. When God has achieved his purpose, now I don't mean, don't get this civil service idea that suddenly one day, as it were, in heaven, it says, now then, we've got the Gentiles in, no more Gentiles now, now the Jews. Not at all. There'll be a tremendous overlapping. But it'll come. And this mystery of Christ which has been in the heart of God from the very beginning, this matter of union with him, has yet to have its last stages and phases fulfilled. So my point is this. What a tremendous thing it is to know where we are in the economy of God. What a wonderful thing it is to know where we are. Not just to be wandering around in some kind of uh, morass where we've got all kinds of biblical ideas and we know that there should be evangelism and we know that there should be teaching and we know that there should be prayer. And we, but we have some clue as to where we are in the economy of God. I think the Apostle Peter had a little bit of a clue, don't you? He was the Apostle that was given the key to open the door to the Gentiles. Remember the vision he had? There must have been something in his head and heart because of the way he preached on the day of Pentecost and a few days later again when he said that God had done this amazing thing and was bringing people to himself. And then he had that vision when he was on the roof, you remember, in Joppa. And he saw all those things that were unclean. And I suppose at the beginning he didn't quite understand it, but when he had to go off to Caesarea to stay in a Gentile household, he knew full well what it meant. <laughs> he said, I'd never eat anything that's not uh, kosher, but he had to, for, I suppose, for a week or two. He must have stayed in Caesarea and ate their food and enjoyed fellowship at their tables, those people who found the Lord in the end, and... In, that, in those meetings, the key was put into the lock and it was turned <clears throat> and the door opened and the Gentiles came into the house of God. So at the end of the age, I don't know how, somewhere, probably perhaps in a totally Jewish context, 
uh, there will be one of these days a key put into the door, a problem, no, no drama about it, no great sort of dust trip. Uh, it'll go into the door, and suddenly the door will be opened, and from that moment, thousands and thousands of Jews will start to come back into the into their own olive tree. Now, their own olive tree is the mystery of Christ. He is the root, he is the root and stem of Jesse. So he is both, as it were, the foundation and the topstone. He's everything. Heart and circumference. Now, having said that as an aside, just on that matter, about the Old Testament saints, so that it gives you a little better idea of perhaps what what our, what sometimes we're so burdened about um, <clears throat> uh, that this that this that we are in we tend to think of as something so totally Gentile uh, in 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 culture in 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 every way, but it is not Gentile in origin. It goes back to Abraham. And although over these 2,000 years God has worked to bring in from every tongue and kindred and people and nation those who are saved through his grace, born of his spirit into this union with Christ, still it is the root that bears the branches and not the branches the root. We must remember that because at the end they're going to see this marvelous completion of the whole thing. So shall all Israel be saved. And then you had that wonderful little word there, which is, to me, so exciting. And I must be careful of it because uh, one can start to sort of get in a total digression. But it says, and so shall be fulfilled the word that says, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer. And I think it says, shall turn away. I better just make sure I quote it exactly right. And uh, he shall turn away ungodliness in Jacob. Now, this is so interesting because it is a quotation of a prof prophecy in Isaiah and chapter 59 and verse <coughs> 20. And a redeemer, a redeemer shall come to Zion and them that turn from transgression in Jacob. That's the Hebrew. That's exactly what Jesus did. He came to Zion to those that turned from transgression in Jacob. That, that was the 11 apostles. It was the 120 in the upper room. It was the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. It was the 5,000 a few weeks later. It, it was all those who turned in Judea and in Samaria. They turned from transgression in Jacob. They were Jews. But when the Apostle Paul quotes this, he quotes the Septuagint version. And there is a most marvelous change. And I think it's all under the ordering of God. Instead of saying, and the Redeemer shall come to Zion, uh, uh, to them, unto them that turn from, the, it says, they shall come out of Zion a deliverer. And he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. 
And this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So when you come to Zechariah chapter 12, where it says about pouring out of the spirit of grace and supplication upon them, we naturally say, oh, well, now when did that happen? We're not quite sure. But then we come to chapter 13, verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain open for uncleanness. And then people get terribly muddled because they go on and they say, what are these wounds that are between your hands? in the midst of your hands. They said, this must be Jesus. But they don't understand that the work of the Lord Jesus actually spans the whole of Jewish history. So that the beginning of the church was those that turned from transgression in Jacob to whom the Redeemer came and started this whole thing that was to go out to the Gentiles and bring the whole, all the Gentiles in. But at the end, out of Zion, that is, out of the spiritual Zion, shall come forth a deliverer, the Redeemer. In other words, then the Lord, having done a work in the midst of all those he's brought in from the Gentiles into his Zion, there he shall turn back to the Jewish people. Just like Joseph revealed himself to his brethren. And then, in that day, the fountain you have known, and I have known, in which we have washed away all our sins, that fountain, that same fountain, will be, as it were, opened to the house of Israel. It doesn't mean all Jews will be saved, any more than the fullness of the Gentiles means all Gentiles will be saved. But what it does mean is that every born-again believer will be. All the elect people of God, amongst Jew and Gentile, will be saved. Thank God for that. I think that's worth knowing. I think it's worth realizing that the mystery of Christ encompasses that. Now, let's close this whole matter, um, this particular point. There is, if you followed me, therefore, there is a historical continuity in the work of God. In this matter of the mystery of Christ, there is a historical continuity. It goes right back to Pentecost. And it includes all that God has done in the last 1,900 and so many years. It goes back even farther. It goes right the way back through the old covenant, right the way back to Abraham, who was the father of all those who believe. Now, it is an understanding of this that is a corrective to localism parochialism, the mentality that everything has failed in church history but us. We are the new beginning. Oh, I've had so many things. Whenever I travel around, I see all kinds. I get letters sometimes. I remember some years ago getting a letter from somebody who said, you must come to us. We will send you the air ticket if you will only say that you will come. This is the first time in 112 years of American history that the Holy Spirit has moved. And I knew instantly that the thing must fall to pieces. You can't possibly make claims like that. You know, the idea is everything else has failed. But now we will not. We are God's new opportunity. We are the opportunity God has been looking for. We will not fail. Somehow or other, we're going to go through. And we cut ourselves off from it. It's nonsense. 
as if everything that's gone before has somehow collapsed. It is true that every movement of the Holy Spirit has within a generation or two crystallized, formalized, and become a monument to something that happened in the past. It doesn't mean that God doesn't save in such things or doesn't bless in such things and doesn't break in in such things. He does. Thank God for that. But so much that's denominational is now a monument to something that happened hundreds of years ago. We speak the language that they spoke. We sort of act as they spoke. We often have the organization that they had then. Sometimes we even have the dress that they had then. It's as if somehow something God did and we can't go beyond it. It's as if we get frozen. We have to stay there when God did it. And so what was a contemporary dress then becomes, with each succeeding year, old-fashioned. Until in the end it becomes the garb of our ministry. <laughs> what was, at the time, a completely contemporary way of dressing. The language is suddenly frozen as if it's somehow spiritual. It's interesting, isn't it? What I'm trying to get at is this. The moment any company, house group, any company, any movement of the spirit, any part of the world, any time in history thinks it's it, it's finished. As if somehow or other it's got everything. Doesn't have to do. See, I've, I, I have go to groups where, for instance, they will never sing a hymn from the past. Because that is a close book. We have nothing to learn from the past. God is doing something with us. You know the kind of thing? We are it. It's an outlook which cuts us off from all that has passed before. Now my point is this. We create much serious problem when we despise church history and ignore our rich heritage. Isn't it obvious that if there's only one body, only one church, only one bride, only one city, what God has been doing in each successive generation must have real value for us? And isn't it true that it has? What real believer questions justification by faith? Yet when Luther first spoke about justification by faith, the whole world blew up. People went around saying, what kind of crank is this man? He's a drunk. He likes his beer too much. Everyone said, you must be very careful, that man. Now no one says, oh, be careful, be careful. What a dangerous doctrine, justification by faith. Oh, we all know. I mean, we know it so well, we don't understand it. It's so much kindergarten business, we don't even inquire. We don't ask the Lord for revelation. We say, oh, we understand that. That's kindergarten stuff, that's elementary. Oh, we don't. Half our neuroses come because of a failure to understand justification. Much of our accusation that the enemy gets a real hold in our lives comes because we don't understand justification. When we're in the battle with, with the forces of darkness, if we don't understand justification, we're knocked out. But, I mean, we all agree, that's the point, when there are lots of other things. You know, when John Wesley began to talk about being born again, about new birth, it was as if the whole world just blew up. 
In the Anglican Church, they called them enthusiasts and said it was disgraceful. You were born again when you were baptized. No such thing as being born again uh, like a new, a second birth when you actually knew it. And Wesley uh, sort of committed the unpardonable by saying you should feel it. actually said you should think, which was anathema to the Puritans. You read that. He sings in, in hymns, I feel the blood. You ever notice that in the Wesleyan hymns? That feeling, I feel the fire glowing within me. All these things, a lot of feeling in the Wesleyan. He didn't mean, of course, a soulish feeling. He meant a real knowledge that we're born again. The witness of the spirit within I don't think there are many believers all over the world, doesn't matter what t tongue you speak, uh, uh, who don't accept new birth today. We know we must be born again. We know it must be an experience. You can't just be converted in the head. You must be, you must be born of the Spirit. You see, it's become ours. The, this is all part of our heritage. Uh, we, we, we who believe in baptism by immersion, we, we forget that the Anabaptists were trussed up in sacks, men, women, and children, and dumped in fountains and rivers and lakes. That thousands upon thousands were martyred, not just by Catholic, but by Protestant also. But today, this matter of believers' baptism is the most widely and commonly accepted form of baptism. When the brethren first started to meet together, they said, we don't want any label. We want just to meet in Christ. I think we more understand that today. The Pentecostals talked about gifts. Oh, what a storm has been. In the early part of this century, over, when the last, middle of the last, over the early nights. <laughs> and they did get into excess. But oh, the storm over them just because they dared to say that some of the things in the book didn't die out with the church uh, uh, of the New Testament, but are ours today. And when A.B. Simpson dared to say that he believed that Christ could be the healer of the body, <laughs> dear A.B. Simpson, what a storm! We accept most of it now. This is our heritage. Don't you see what I'm trying to say? It's our heritage. Should we cut ourselves off as if God can only show us something? No, of course not. All this. There were people who were hounded out of this country to Holland and then from Holland to the States simply because they saw the, the truth of the independence of each congregation. There were others, as Bob and others will tell you, who died and were persecuted simply because they saw that Elders were the right form of church government. Now, shall we just close the door on all this and say, no, 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 that's all old hat. At the time, all that revelation was contested by Satan. And in most cases, it was sealed with the blood of martyrs. And it's our heritage. So what I'm saying is this, this mystery of Christ, this matter of spanning the whole of time is something tremendous because we've come in at the end. I think it would have been rather marvellous, perhaps for some, uh, we might feel it would be marvellous to be at the beginning. Everything fresh, everything new, everything going. 
But we've come in at the end. I think it's even more marvellous because we've got all this richness behind us. So the fact, if we do think, had the time to do it, and we're able to think about the local nature of the expression of this mystery of Christ, that fact must never take away from this other fact that it spans the whole of time. We want to be contemporary. We want it to be a local, concrete expression through flesh and blood people, speaking contemporary language, dressed in contemporary clothes, living a contemporary life. But, oh, we want to have that timeless and heavenly nature of the mystery as well. I think that lifts us out of a lot of traps and keeps us from a lot of snares. May God help us in this matter. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we just pray that thou wilt somehow bring, bring this home to us in a way that perhaps we've never, it's never come home to us before. It's very easy, Lord, to somehow feel that we're involved in something which is just a local, something local, petty, and somehow just bounded by our own little lives. Lord, we pray that thou wilt open our eyes to see what it is that thou hast brought us into. And one day when that whole building, that bride of yours, that wife of the Lamb, that city of God is unveiled, what a marvel it will be, Lord. We see that it will span all the ages, span the whole of time, and the marvel of it all will be that, Lord, we're there by thy grace. Help us, therefore, Lord, uh, when we take this in conjunction with some of these other things to see, Lord, why we need to be built together and why we need to be subject to discipline and why we need, Lord, to have our own inner original experience of the help us, Lord, in these things. And we ask it all in the name of our Lord Jesus.